It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. We've got lots to talk about flaws in GPG you're going to want to fix right away. Same thing with SUDO, an exploit that's been around for... Steve holds up his 10 fingers. I counted 10 years. Wow. We'll also talk about Blastdoor, the new protection. Apple snuck into Apple Messages. Google found out about it, though, and told the world. It's all coming up next. Steve will tell you on Security Now. It's the last week of our annual Twit survey. That's the little thing we do every year to get to know you better. Helps us make better programming. Helps us understand what you're looking for and not looking for. Helps us sell advertising as well. And, you know, we don't want to track you. We don't track you. But it sure is nice to get that information once a year. Completely voluntary. But if you want to help us out, survey closes February 8th. Go to twit.tv slash survey 21. We are just, uh, I think, 50 short of 10,000 responses. We like to get to 10,000. So the la- get on in there. Be one of the last 50. Twit.tv slash survey 21. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 804. Recorded Tuesday, February 2nd, 2021. Nat Slipstreaming 2.0. Security Now is brought to you by Barracuda. Hackers are always looking for the weakest link in your security configuration, especially in your email security. Barracuda's new threat analyzer tool helps you gain visibility into those vulnerabilities that are unique to you. Visit barracuda.com slash security now and try it free. And by IT Pro TV. Get a new career in IT with the best IT education around. Visit itpro.tv slash security now for an additional 30% off all consumer subscriptions for the lifetime of your active subscription. Use the code SN30 at checkout. And by ExtraHub. When cyber criminals get past your business's defenses, you need a plan for detection and response. Learn more about how Extra Hop stops breaches 84% faster and explore the interactive demo at extrahop.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show where we cover the security news of the world and help keep you safe online with this guy right here, Mr. Steve Gibson of the Gibson Leo? Research Corporation. Hello, Steve. Great to be with you again for our 804th episode. Wow. Or two two twenty one Groundhog Day, uh, and it, maybe it's fitting that it's Groundhog Day because the title of today's podcast is Nat Slipstreaming two Redux. Okay, we talked about that. We talked about we introduced the concept of Nat Slipstreaming in November, uh, shortly after Sammy Kemkar had figured out a way to uh, for a remote server whether it was serving JavaScript or, or a, a, a malicious ad, anything that could run JavaScript in your browser uh, could trick your NAT router into opening up a reverse mapping through its firewall um, uh, on other ports, which had various deleterious effects. Well, that was then. The browser makers immediately moved to keep that from happening, uh, but 
you know, and I quote Schneier again in uh, lower in the in the podcast, reminding us that attacks never get weaker. They only ever get stronger. We're back now with 2.0, a far more powerful uh, and worrisome attack. Um, but we're, we're going to wrap up with that. We're first going to examine another instance of a misbehaving certificate authority who has finally and five years of misbehavior, I would say it's time to lose Chrome's trust. We're oh, gonna, boy. Uh, cover, yeah, that's never good. It's like sell that stock short. Oh, uh, boy. We well, actually, Google's stock just went through the roof this morning, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> cover, yeah, I saw it did like a straight line. Yeah, like straight uh, yeah. I don't, they had very good anyway, earnings, yeah. We're, we're going to cover a number of serious new vulnerabilities, including an urgent update need for the just-released uh, GNU Privacy Guard. GPG has a newly induced bad problem. Uh, we've got another supply chain attack, this time not aimed at corporations, but more at, at gaming end users. Uh, we have a disastrous 10-year-old flaw in Linux's sudo command, yes, believe it or not. I got an update to sudo the yesterday. I thought, mm, Good. Yeah. Unfortunately, think of all the Linux systems out there that oh, won't. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and thanks to Google, uh, we have some details of Apple's quietly redesigned sandboxing uh, of iMessage, which they uh, implemented in iOS 14. Um, I'm also going to share something that I think our listeners will find quite interesting about some recent architectural decisions that I've just made in the last – well, actually, it was something that, that uh, it was an, an aha moment yesterday uh, about Spinrite. Um, and then we're going to conclude with a look at the inevitable improvement in NAT bypassing slipstreaming. So I think another interesting podcast. Ooh, as always. And uh... – <laughs> And our picture of the week is yeah. <laughs> just around the corner. Um, this would be a, perhaps a good time to take a break for a, a message from one of our fine sponsors, Barracuda. I always, you know, I got to always bite my lip because I always want to do the heart song. <laughs> I always think of that when I think Barracuda. Uh, not that Barracuda, not the fish with the, all the little teeth. This is a, probably the best-known uh, security company uh, as far as protecting businesses. Uh, we use Everybody uses Barracuda. Hackers are always looking, as you know, for the weakest link in your security configuration, right? Especially your email. That's really where almost all the threats come from these days. If... If you can find those vulnerabilities before they do, then you can defend against cyber attacks. That's where Barracuda's new threat analyzer tool comes in. We've talked about other tools that Barracuda has. They have really a wide array of great, useful security tools. This is a, a new one. From traditional malware to the latest spear phishing, account takeover, and conversation hijacking, Barracuda has identified 13 categories of email threats. And, you know, there's no one fix for any of them. It takes layered security. We always talk about that to protect you against all 13 threat types. And believe me, you know, you protect 12, the, the bad guys are going to find the one that, that where you're vulnerable. That's what they literally what they spend their time doing is looking for those vulnerabilities. Right. And when they find the gap in your security, they just 
you know, they say, oh, uh, here, let me open up my toolkit. And I've got the, the exactly the way to get into this system, which could end up costing you not just money, not just millions of dollars, you know, in, in ransomware and remediation and things like that, but could cost you your reputation. What is that worth, right? Now, here's where it gets hard. With, with, with hundreds of highly targeted personalized threat variants emerging every day and many different kinds of on-prem and cloud-based email systems, it can be really challenging to figure out where are your vulnerabilities? Where among those 13 types of attacks are you uh, unprotected? That's what the Barracuda Threat Analyzer is for. It's simple. It's fast to use. It's not an antivirus. Go to barracuda.com slash security now. Uh, they actually have this great little quizlet, a few multiple choice questions about your email security setup. It takes about two minutes. It's very quick. But then the Barracuda Threat Analyzer will give you a report. You don't have to download it. You don't have to install it. It will give you a report saying, here's what you want to protect against based on what you've told us about your mail setup. You'll get customized recommendations on what you can do to defend against those attacks. It's free. It's easy. It's really pretty much just, uh, you know, a giveaway. Here, try this. Barracuda.com slash security now. Their uh, December, Barracuda's December spear phishing report, they do this every month, found that 12% of all spear phishing attacks are business email compromise. That's up from 7%. Sounds low, right? But no, that's that's a lot. It's up from 7% in 2019. And I bet you 2021, it goes up even more. And the reason this, these attacks grow, they're successful. They work. FBI, according to their most recent internet crime report, business email compromise led to $3.5 billion in losses. <laughs> Just one example, the government of Puerto Rico. One attack, $2.6 You know Barbara Corcoran? You watch uh, Shark Tank? Her employees fell for an impersonation attack. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. They, they got an invoice and paid it, even though it was a fake. For $400,000, you know, they recovered the money in, in the nick of time. But that's how, this is where you're, you can get in trouble. This kind of stuns me, but it happens more often than you think. There's a school district in Texas that made fraudulent payments over a whole month. Invoice came in, they said, yeah, I'm sure that's real. Paid it. $2.3 million. Are you protected against that and other kinds of attacks? There are 13. Try the Barracuda Threat Analyzer today. It's free. You get a full report showing exactly what you need to do to secure your email. They'll tell you which tools they have to help. But this thing is actually just a great thing to do. Barracuda.com slash security now. Find out where your hidden threats lie. It's, it's simple. It's easy. And I think it's an eye-opener. The Barracuda Threat Analyzer. Barracuda.com slash security now. Thank you, Barracuda. Thank you, Barracuda. They do all sorts of great stuff for their users, but also for the community as a whole. Baradakuta.com slash security now. Like supporting this show. Okay, yeah. Steve, picture of the week. Well, this is a pretty simple one. I just, I, it was in my queue of, of It actually made me was, laugh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we got two guys sitting side by side, each at their own terminal. And the guy on the left says to the guy on the right, so uh, why are you going on to the dark web and we see the screen of the guy on the right it's got it says dark web and it's you know black screen skeleton skull, skull. <laughs> right <laughs> and then oh. below it says welcome and have a great day anyway the answer to the first person's question is i forgot my password so i need to go look it up yeah they know of course yeah that's they, a yeah, variant on web. the 
Oh, you lost your data? Don't worry. The NSA has a copy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, okay. As we know, our certificate-driven web server system of trust is based upon a chain of trust, actually many chains of trust, uh, where each chain is anchored by a signing authority's root certificate. That root cert contains their public key, which matches their secret key used to sign the certificates, which are presented by web servers when people browse to them. So with that model, any web server presenting an unexpired identity declaration certificate that has been signed by any of the browser's trusted certificate authorities will be trusted. And of course, the signature is verified because it will it can be verified against the public key which the browser has in its root store. As we know also, those of us who have been listening to this podcast for a while, several times in the past few years, we've covered the interesting and often fraught news of signing authorities either deliberately abusing or inadvertently failing to properly authenticate the identities of those whose certificates they sign. The inevitable result is that they lose the privilege of having their signatures trusted by the industry's web browsers, which effectively renders their signatures useless and therefore worthless. And we're here again today. Google has just announced that they intend to ban and remove support from Chrome for certificates issued by the Spanish certificate authority Camerfirma, C-A-M-E-R-F-I-R-M-A, Camerfirma. That revocation of trust will go into effect once Chrome 90 hits the release channel in mid-April, so about two and a half months from now. Uh, and at that point, Chrome will no longer trust any camera firma signatures. So that this, of course, means that none of the otherwise valid TLS certificates that have previously been signed by camera firma will be seen as valid by Chrome. So all of the web servers currently serving certificates signed by camera firma will be invalid for all Chrome users. And as we know, once upon a time, th this wasn't taken so seriously back at the beginning of the podcast. If that happened, you go, okay, fine. Yeah, you know, I I'll go anyway. But no, <laughs> these days we're taking this all much more seriously. And I don't even know if you're able to force Chrome past a an invalid signature on a cert. I should probably know that. But anyway, uh, so since untrusting any certificate authority's root cert instantly ends that aspect of the CA's business uh, and also punishes their previous customers whose signed certificates no longer function, uh, you know, the decision to do this is always made only after the faulting party has been warned many times and only after it's become clear that for whatever reason, their conduct is placing the greater internet at risk. So 
In this instance, the final decision to drop trust for Camera Firma's certificates comes only after the company was given more than six weeks to to finally explain a string of 26 incidents. And frankly, I'm I'm going to share three of those. And those are, I would call them compound (laughs) failures because, I mean, calling them 26 is really condensing the number. Uh, The incidents detailed by Mozilla, sort of stored there, uh, date back to March of 2017. I've got a link in the show notes. Uh, for anyone who's interested in more detail that I'm going to provide, but you'll be convinced here in a minute. Uh, The two most recent problems of these 26, and again, counting very generously, uh, occurred just last month in January, even while and, and subsequent to Camera Firma being notified that it was under probationary investigation the month before in December of 2020. Um, The incidents paint a clear and disturbing picture of a company that has failed and not just once, but like, like it seems determined to fail to meet industry-wide agreement on their, on the quality of their product and the security standards they must hold in return for the privilege of issuing TLS certificates for website operators, software makers, and enterprise system administrators. As we know, and I've, we've talked about, because it's sort of a fascinating aspect of public key, the, the whole public key infrastructure, in a sense, traditional certificate authorities are printing money, right? You, you pay them hundreds of dollars, and they make sure you who you are, who you say you are, and then they press a button which spits out a signature, which essentially, you know, I mean, they 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 are they are bearing some cost to to run this bureaucracy and to verify your identity. But you're paying them for some bits, which they're you know they're very special bits. You know, you it takes them to make those bits. So, but that's the point. You know, it's in return for printing money, the, their conduct has to meet standards. And looking over the list of Camera Firma's 26 transgressions, it appears very clear that they have failed over many years to deserve what was an initial presumption of trust that they were given by the industry's web browsers, assuming that this was a serious business that was going to take its responsibilities to heart. But that hasn't happened. And so that, that trust that was originally given is being rescinded. Okay, so here's just three that that made sense to share. Issue R, and I think they start at A. Uh, issue R was titled "Failure to Disclose Unconstrained Sub CA," and th- and this was named Digital Sign. Now, okay, so remember that it's possible for certificate authority not not only to sign the end certificate for a web server, for example, but to sign a um, a, a sub-certificate authority that, that is a, a subsidiary certificate. And unconstrained means that that, that sub-CA certificate was, was, is not constrained against doing its own signing. So essentially, they were 
they were using their they were giving their trust to a third party and allowing them to do anything they wanted to to like sign any certificates and and that and so their trust would flow down to that sub CA um so and and there are situations where like like a business entity a a, a subsidiary we'll talk about one in a second mul- an, another one of theirs multi cert but th- but this one digital sign you know you can do it but but part of the requirements are that you acknowledge that you 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 tell the 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 industry that that this is what you've done because obviously this is a very powerful thing to you basically giving away the 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 right to sign things so in april of 2018 camera firma failed to disclose an unconstrained sub ca despite mozilla requiring in november of 2017 that such disclosures be complete by 2018 by 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 april 15th of 2018 no explanation was provided by camera firma as to the cause of this omission nor were effective controls provided that would prevent such Mozilla policy violations in the future. So that's one of the three. So here's a big compound one. That was issue R. Here's T. Failure to disclose unconstrained sub-CA. And this one is multi-cert. And this has date ranges from 2018 through 2020. Um, And the issue reads, in the course of resolving issue R, that's the one I just mentioned, it was further discovered in July of 2018 that Camera Firma had failed to disclose two additional sub-CA certificates. So they're just doing this whenever they want to. Operated by multi-cert. Mozilla policy required that such sub-CAs be disclosed within one week of creation. Camera Firma's explanation at the time was that they failed to consider that the person responsible for disclosing into the CCADB, that the organization to which you need to disclose, would be unavailable, and that the backup for that person would also be unavailable. They resolved this by adding a backup to the backup in case the backup fails. However, the disclosure in the CCADB turned out to be incorrect and misleading, as Camera Firma disclosed that they operated the sub-CA when, in fact, it was externally operated. At the time, this was only detected because Microsoft had disclosed the CPCPS they had for multi-certs root, which participated in Microsoft's root program. Camera Firma's explanation was that the person responsible for disclosing was overloaded and that three people would be responsible for disclosures going forward. <laughs> this is all still T, right? This is one. This is considered one problem. In 2019, Camera Firma failed to provide correct audits for multi-cert. Their explanation was that they only had one person responsible for, I I think this is in someone's garage in Spain. Anyway, one person responsible for communicating with their sub-CAs and had failed to consider that the person responsible for communicating with sub-CAs and disclosing into CCADB would be unavailable. They stated that they intended to prevent such issues from recurring in the future by purporting to implement additional steps. 
And then finally, still issue T in 2020, let's say last year, Camera Firma again failed to properly disclose sub-CAs operating by, operated by multi-cert. So their previous assertions that they were going to fix these previous problems weren't fixed. They erroneously reported them as covered by Camera Firma's CPCPS. Their stated reason was because these new sub-CAs were not covered by the new audit from Multicert. Yet, although the expectations for how to disclose had been previously communicated by Kathleen Wilson. So again, they were told they didn't do it. And finally, issue X, which was, again, about this multi-cert sub-CA. There's misissuance from 2018 through 2019. In August of 2018, within weeks of having received a cross-signed sub-CA from Camera Firma, that is re- relating to issue T, Multicert issued several certificates that violated the ASN.1 constraint for organization name field length. Camera Firma's response was that both they and Multicert would written would now regularly check uh, CRT.sh for certificate lint violations. <laughs> then. Later, on October of 2018, it was discovered that Multicert had misissued 174 certificates with an incorrect QC statements extension. You know, so they're just not even they're not doing this right. In response to the report that was provided, Multicert revoked the certificates and then misissued new certificates with a validity period greater than 825 days, which is illegal, to replace those the following month. Further, (laughs) after reportedly fixing the underlying issue, Multicert again misissued another certificate having a validity period greater than 825 days, which, you know, their system shouldn't do. You know, what do they have someone typing it in manually? You know, oh, I'm sorry, we used the previous year calendar by mistake. I mean, really. Anyway, during the course of this investigation, Multicert also failed to revoke on the timeline required by the the BRs, the baseline requirements, in order to give the customer more time to replace certificates. That's right. In March of 2019, it was discovered that Multicert's certificates also had insufficient entropy, containing only 63 bits of entropy rather than the required 64. So, again, those are just three of what they call them three. There's like That's more like 13 of the 26 issues that have been compiled since, 26, since 2017. And, okay, maybe having 63 bits of entropy rather than 64, you know, you have a stuck bit as not a big deal. But, you know, in the CA business, you know, uh, uh, which, as I said, is a can be, if you, if you behave yourself, a money, a money printing gold mine, you know, it, it is about the details and about rule following. Um, and... Every rule 
has been established for for some good reason over time. They didn't just make up a bunch of rules because they were, you know, sitting around saying, you know, let, let's make this harder to be a CA. They're all there for a reason. And if a CA is sloppy about, you know, something as simple as the amount of entropy in their certs, and of course, that's an important thing to have, then you ha it begs the question, what else are they doing wrong? And if their system can somehow issue certificates with illegal uh, validity periods greater than, than is allowed, again, what else are they doing wrong? So, you know, through the years, we've discussed the walk of shame made by the Startcom subsidiary of WoSign. Oh, and by, and by the way, uh, Startcom ended up doing some business with this uh, uh, camera firma group, I didn't I didn't share those <laughs> mistakes, but they're there. Uh, and remember, DigiNotar, of course, and even Symantec. Um, in each case, trust in those companies' certs was revoked. DigiNotar filed for bankruptcy, and as we know, Symantec, whose whose certificate signing name was essentially ruined by their own misconduct, sold their certificate authority business to DigiCert. So, uh, you know, at this, at this point, the other browser makers have been silent on camera firma. And I just think that's because Google is a first mover here. Uh, Chrome has clearly made the right decision. So I'd expect to see similar announcements being made by Apple, Microsoft, and Mozilla well, before yeah, long. And this list is from Mozilla, so... Clearly, right. they're well aware of it. It doesn't seem that <laughs> malicious. It seems sloppy, right? I mean, yeah, agreed, agreed. Yeah. Although but you make although, an excellent what, point. Here's your opportunity to make a lot of money. Why oh, be sloppy? Leo, could, could I have that business, please? <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, you know, we just paid, yeah. You know, uh, we, I use Digicert among others for our certs. I just got another one. It's expensive. I spent more than a thousand bucks. Uh, for the cert, it was a wild card cert, um, and yep. they were good. They call, you know, the business line. I had to figure out a way to answer the business phone, <laughs> which was <laughs> that was an interesting. Yeah, in, in, in fact, 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 Sue does that for me, and right. so we have a standing deal. I say, okay, Sue, now did did um, did your cert's going to be calling right sometime this morning? Are you are you going to be an around? Appointment. Yeah, you need, to, you need to answer and say hi. I'm I'm a breathing human. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I was I was really glad that they went to the extra mile. You know, it was inconvenient, but they did it. And and this was a renewal. This wasn't even like they they already had uh, verified me. So yeah, you kind of want these guys to do it right. I really think. Well, this. and and of course the as I've said before, there is now of course certs are also available for free. Right. Let's the encrypt. Acme protocol yep. Yep. with let with with let with mm -hmm. let's encrypt that it'll do that for you, but. That's also let, let's encrypt is also where all the malicious certs are. Right. That is all of the 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 sound alike, look alike, Unicode hacked domain names. You go to any of these things, they have. Whoa, yeah, look, I've got TLS. Yes, let's encrypt is my certificate. So I, I would not be surprised if at some point there isn't an indication that is surfaced on our browsers about whether. There was any validation of this assertion made by a human in the loop, or was it just automation? Um, and you know, the, the to 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 be fair to Let's Encrypt, their goal was to encrypt the internet, 
and they have done that. Unfortunately, we rely on certificates for two things, not only encryption, but authentication. And and that's the problem with Let's Encrypt is that it, it because it's a bot system, you know, it's an automated certificate issuance. I mean, this could have been done 20 years ago if we wanted to. It's not hard. Um, but that just means that that there's no assertion of the identity of the, you know, b- behind the company. And that's why I'm happy to have my relationship with DigiCert is that uh, at some yep. point I wouldn't be yep. surprised if – if there isn't something that says, okay, yeah, you're encrypted, but we're not sure who you're talking to. It's also the case that th- there is no standard price, right? The prices vary. True. Um, and, and for what it's worth, the way DigiCert works, especially now that certs have, have had their maximum yeah. issuance I lifetime. Got, I got my reduced. new one-year cert, right? Right. But I bought two and, years. But, well, and that v- validation probably last you two years. That is to say, ah, yeah. uh, they've decoupled the, the the validation of your identity from the issuance of certs. Right. So that, and, and this is what's been so handy for me. Uh, I'll like in the middle of the night on a holiday weekend, I'll say, oh, you know, I, I, I really want forums, <laughs> forums.grc.com. Right. Right. And I go over to DigiCert and make myself a cert, which... Because grc.com it, has already been validated. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. And so I'm so 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 you're I, I I'm able to do that. But I could even reissue a grc.com cert if I wanted. Ah. Be, so because my point is, every so often, separate from issuing, they perform the "Are you still you?" Mm. dance, mm. and then and that bumps their 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 calendar forward. And then within that window, you could do anything you want to. And, That's interesting. And, and I, mean, I didn't like, know that. Yeah. You know, night or day. That's yeah, in response sure. to Let's Encrypt because they really do want to be a little bit easier, right? They have to be. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they, they have, they have to, to make that trade-off. Okay. So, you know, after Camifirma is gone and I presumably, I, like I said, I, I wouldn't <laughs> – if I had stock, I'd sell it. Uh, you know, there will still be plenty of certificate authorities – for browsers and consumers both to trust. So, you know, it's not like we're, we don't have enough of them. Uh, everyone will, st- will probably well remember the, the day I clicked on the, the list of, uh, of certs in my root store just about fell over when it was more than 400 because I remembered when there were five of them. Um, and so th- the best thing that probably comes from this, from this sort of banishing is the sobering reminder to all the other CAs, you know, even you non-top tier. I mean, DigiCert is like top tier. I, I'm always – sometimes I'll look at some, you know, good website cert wondering, and there it is, signed by DigiCert. And I think, yep. Uh, so, who, you know, camera firma, okay. Uh, but, you know – if the, these non-top tier guys, I mean, here camera firm is like, well, our, 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 the person who we needed to do this had a backup, but we, I guess the backup needs a backup because, you know, it's like, what? Okay. So the point is behave yourselves. If you, if you've got a growing list over of like mistakes over in Mozilla's collection pile, I, I use ought to start thinking about taking it seriously. 
because, you know, at some point, you know, the boom is going to be lowered on you and you're not going to be able to print money anymore. You're going to, you know, it turns out it's not a privilege or it's not a right. It's a privilege. Um, okay. So, um, hopefully people who are using GPG are on some list somewhere and they, and this will be old news, but an urgent update is needed of the recently released GNU privacy guard. Uh, version 1.9.0 was recently released just a few weeks ago on the 19th of January. LibGCrypt is an open source crypto library as part of GPG, one of GPG's modules. Last Thursday, uh, our old friend, Tavis Ormandy, whom we haven't heard from recently, uh, of course, of Google's Project Zero, publicly disclosed the existence of a heap buffer overflow in LibGCrypt, which was due to an incorrect assumption in the block buffer management code. Tavis wrote, uh, and I just hit the space bar and, <laughs> and whoa, I, you know, I went way down. Uh, Tavis wrote something. I'm sure he did. Uh, <laughs> can read it. Java, oh. <clears throat> Here, I'll be Tavis Ormandy. Yeah. <clears throat> Very good. Just, I, actually, yeah. I found it. But oh, okay. you, want, you want to read it? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I was anyway. just going to give him some sort of nerdy voice, which I, is probably not uh, the best th thing to do. Oh, thank you, Leo. <laughs> uh, just, he said, just decrypting some data can overflow a heat buffer with attacker-controlled data. No verification or signature is validated before the vulnerability occurs. He said, I believe this is easily exploitable. He said, I believe this is easily exploitable. How about that? I'm See, sure that was... that's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded like Daffy Duck, maybe. Uh, I am nervous now because I do use uh, GPG, so I'm going to have to check make sure I'm on the... Make sure you're at 1.9.1. 1.91. 1. 1. Okay. So yeah. Tavis forwarded his findings to the developers responsible for LibGCrypt. And as soon as the report was received, the team published an immediate notice to users. Announce urgent. Stop using LibGCrypt 1.9.0 exclamation point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the advisory, principal GNU PG developer Werner... Koch asked users to stop using version 1.9.0, which, as a new release, had begun to be adopted by oh. projects including Fedora 34 and Gentoo. A new version of LibGCrypt, version 1.9.1, was released in a matter of hours to it because it wasn't a hard problem; it was just a bad problem yeah. to address the severe <laughs> vulnerability which was even too new to have had a CVE number assigned. Now, that's the way you want your security folks to operate. Just, you know, like it's already done by the time the CVE gets issued. Um, in, an, in an analysis of the vulnerability, cryptographer Filippo Valsorda, who we've uh, referenced in the past, suggested that the bug was caused by memory safety issues in C. Oh, imagine that. Has anyone ever heard of that? And I know may be related to efforts to defend against timing side channel attacks. 
So what we have is an instance of an attempt to mitigate one potential threat creating a new, very real vulnerability where none existed before. So as a consequence, users who had upgraded to LiveGCrypt 1.9 are being urged to download the patched version as quickly as possible. In other words, a trivial problem to exploit. The GPG developers agreed with Tavis's assessment of the bug severity. They said, quote, exploiting this bug is simple and thus immediate action for 1.9.0 users is required. So, you need physical access to the machine, though, right? No, no, no. Oh, this wouldn't. is a send somebody email oh, exploit. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have so 1.9.0 on my Mac here, so I'm upgrading it yep, right now. Good. Yep. So thank goodness, or thank Google, for Tavis. Yes. Uh, uh, but you have to wonder, what would have happened if Tavis had not been on the ball? How long would this newly introduced serious flaw have lingered within the GPG code? It's clear that when a skilled developer examined the code, Tavis, without the inherent bias of the code's author, and as, all, as we've often said, it's very difficult to see one's own mistakes, the problem was apparent. Tavis just saw it. Yeah. So... That suggests that malicious coders, whom we know are unfortunately every bit as talented as the world's best, might also be scouring the world's open source looking for exactly such flaws. So to me, this suggests two things. First, we really need to appreciate how brittle our current coding and code is and try much harder to just leave things alone that are already tried, tested, and true. Stop messing with code that works. Stop trying to make things better that are just fine the way they are, really. The second well, thing is that we really need to reconsider our coding practices. We need implementation languages that inherently do not allow these sorts of mistakes to be made in the first place. Such languages exist, but they're not macho and fun to use. Consequently, a highly critical security-oriented cryptographic library for the widely used GPG is written in C, the lowest level most macho language with the worst security track record. Okay, I might that, argue that assembly is even lower level macho. Actually, I'll be getting to there in a second. Okay. <laughs> that, that could be owing to the fact that so much code is still being written in C, but it's also owing to the fact that the language provides exactly zero yeah. protection yeah. from doing anything the programmer wants. By design. Which is what? Yes, which is why it's appealing to cowboys. Right. right. And Everybody loves C. Yes, and yes, I know. I wrote Squirrel <laughs> in Assembler. So who am I to speak about the need to use safe, high-level languages 
when security matters. Is, do you have static type checking in Assembler? I don't think so. I, I'm just saying, Leo, everybody <laughs> else should do it. Yes. Everybody else. None of you are good enough to be using and, Assembler. And that's, of course, the problem, right? Right. Everybody thinks I'm that everybody enough. else yeah. should yeah. do it. I can do it. With the, foresee- with the foreseeable outcome that still today no one does. Yeah. So everything should be rewritten in Rust, except for Spinrite. <laughs> I'm just so saying. good luck and God bless, and be sure to update your GPG code. <laughs> I just did one nine one. Nice. Thank you, Mac Ports. Yep, that was uh, yeah. Nice. And a good example is pseudo. You're talking about how long this could have gone undetected. Uh, Su two was nine years, I think. Right. Ten. Ten. It was. Tw- it was 2011. Yeah. Yeah. And undetected, yeah. and and it allowed a local user to escalate oh. to root. Oh, that's not good. Yes, we're getting there. We're okay. getting. To oh, that. sorry, I didn't want to. No, uh, but now would be a good time to take our second break. Okay, maybe. I'm sorry. Should have had that extra <laughs> cup of coffee. <laughs> <It's> okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting all head up here. Um, our show today. Ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> brought to you by IT Pro TV. This is a serious topic. Right now, there are a lot of people out of work, underemployed, not happy in their jobs. I think that's true all the time. Maybe because you're listening to this show, clearly you have an interest in the nerdiest, geekiest, low-level details, minutia of tech. You're, you, you should be in IT. What are you suffering for? This is a great time to get into IT, the uh, tech industry is rapidly expanding. The demand for IT skills in the workforce could never be higher. There are, I think I saw last I saw, 4 million open, unfilled jobs in the U.S. alone in IT. An IT career can be rewarding, longevity, you're always learning, always growing. The pay is great and you would, and you love doing it, right? If you're listening to this show, you must. Uh, well, IT Pro TV is a place to go. They don't just, you know, a lot of times you go to somewhere <clears throat> that does test prep, you know, so that you can get that first cert that gets you that first job, you know, the A plus or the security plus, or the network plus or the NCSC or whatever. And well, they're teaching to the test. Hey, these are the questions you're going to get asked. So here's the stuff you learn. That's not IT Pro TV. They teach you skills. They teach you how to be better at IT. And not just any skills, the skills that are in high demand that makes you more valuable to your current employer, your future employer. And uh, by the way, you don't have to guess, IT Pro TV has counselors who will tell you what jobs are big and growing and how to get the certs you need to get those jobs. And boy, do they teach. So you're always learning from somebody who's a pro in the field. It's not, you know, some Joe off the street, obviously, uh, somebody who just read a book. It's somebody who's been working in it. But also they pick them carefully and, and they do a great job so that they're engaging, they're entertaining, they're informative, but, but it's not painful. It's not, and now go to page six, Bueller, none of that. IT Pro TV has grown quite a bit since we started talking about them in 2013. <clears throat> in the last seven plus years, they, have, they now are in a brand new headquarters. Well, we went down, not brand new anymore, I guess it's a few years old. We went down to Gainesville to see it. When they built it, it had five studios. They're now up to seven studios. Why do they need to do that? Because everything's changing in IT all the time. New versions of the software, new tests, new certs. 
and they want to make sure that you're getting the latest, freshest, most up-to-date information. And they do that. One reviewer said, IT Pro TV has helped me with two certifications. Also, as the supplemental material for my graduate school classes, grad school, give it a try. You won't be disappointed. Get the search you need without leaving home. IT Pro TV is available on Roku, Fire TV, Apple TV, everywhere, on your computer, on your phone. Watch on the big screen. I leave it running. That's the best way. Get it by osmosis all the time. They have a live stream you can watch, but they also have more than 5,800 hours of on-demand IT programming. Learn on your schedule at your own pace with the content that matters. Now, this month... Brand new month, Project Management Month at IT Pro TV. There's a webinar coming up uh, in about eight days on February 11th. It'll be on, if you miss it, it'll be on demand after that, but it's live on February 11th called Navigating the Future of Project Management. If you don't even know what that is, this would be something good for you to find out because I guarantee you, as soon as you get in business, this is something you're going to need. Courses in PMP, ITIL, or ITIL, Service Management, Agile. And, of course, they've got training for Microsoft, Cisco, Apple, Linux, everything. They're the only official video training partner for CompTIA. That A-plus cert, that's CompTIA. And Network Plus, Security Plus. You can get one of their learning coaches along with all their wonderful job resources that will help you on your career path, depending on the subscription you, you buy. You'll always be supported with IT Pro TV's amazing team, no matter what subscription. And if you want something free, and there is a lot of free stuff, do check out Don Pizet's, uh Technado podcast. You can subscribe to that right now. Industry guests, IT news recaps. It's a great way to stay up with the business with IT. All right, enough. I don't want to. I don't want to pitch you too hard. If you're interested in this stuff, and this could be a great career, go to itpro.tv/security now. We're going to make it very affordable. Use the offer code SN30. You'll get thirty percent off any consumer subscription for as long as you stay active, even if it's a hundred years. Which, by the way, if it is, congratulations. <laughs> You're the longest living IT professional in the world. What do you think IT will be in 100 years? Here's something I can guarantee you. It's going to change a lot, and IT Pro TV will keep up with it and keep you up with it, too. 30% off the lifetime of your active subscription with the offer code SN30, itpro.tv slash security. Now, IT Pro TV, build or expand your IT career, and you know what? You could enjoy the journey and then enjoy your brand new job in it itpro.tv slash security now if you love if you love this stuff <laughs> why aren't you why aren't you in it i guess would be the question <laughs> uh on we go with a show with the fully hydrated steve gibson so um we have another interesting supply chain attack and a little bit of interesting uh takeaway i think so the company Big Knox, B-I-G capital N-O-X, is a Hong Kong-based company which publishes, among other products, an Android emulator for PCs and Macs called Knox Player. The website claims that they have over, that is the Big Knox website, that they have over 150 million users spread through more than 150 countries and speaking 20 different languages. Though the Big Knox follower base is predominantly Asian based on what ESET found. Uh, I'll get there in a second. The Knox player is generally used by gamers to play mobile games on their PCs. So 
the discoverers of something fishy going on were our friends and recent Twit network sponsor, ESET. Uh, they spotted a highly targeted surveillance campaign involving the distribution of three different malware families via tailored, and here it comes, malicious updates to selected victims in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Sri Lanka. <sighs> ESET spotted the first signs of something going on last September, and the compromise continued until explicitly malicious activity, as they put it, was uncovered just last week, which prompted ESET to report the incident to Big Knox. ESET wrote, Based on the compromised software in question and the delivered malware exhibiting surveillance capabilities, we believe that this may indicate the intent of intelligence collection on targets involved in the gaming community. So, to carry out the attack, the Knox player update mechanism served as the vector to deliver trojanized versions of the software to users which, upon installation, delivered three different malicious payloads, uh, including, for example, uh, the ghost rat, you know, rat as in remote access Trojan, uh, which is used to spy on its victims, capture keystrokes, and gather sensitive information. Separately, they found instances where additional malware, like the Poison Ivy rat, was downloaded by the Big Knox updater from remote servers controlled by the threat actor. So ESET wrote, Poison Ivy rat was only spotted in, ac in activity subsequent to the initial malicious updates and downloaded from attacker-controlled infrastructure. Now, unfortunately, Big Knox in Hong Kong was not very helpful. And when they were contacted by ESET, who wrote of this, they said, ESET said, we have contacted Big Knox about the intrusion and they denied being affected. We've also offered our support to help them pass the disclosure in case they decide to conduct an internal investigation. In other words, ESET was, you know, this is now a, a page. I've got the link in the show notes here uh, to their full disclosure. So this was going to put Big Knox, you know, in the spotlight. So anyway, for one thing, if anyone hearing this is a user of Big Knox's Knox player, uh, you probably need to take responsibility yourself because <coughs> it doesn't sound like Big Knox is is prone to for making sure that you didn't receive any malware. Uh, th this link in the show notes contains some IOCs, uh, indicators of compromise, which anyone who's worried can check for on their own system. Um, the intrusions appear to be gaming world centric and highly targeted. So it doesn't look like it's a big widespread campaign. ESET said, in comparison to the overall number of active Knox player users, there is a very small number of victims. According to ESET's telemetry, more than 100,000 of our users, meaning ESET's users, have Knox Player installed on their machines. Among them, only five users received a malicious update. Wow, that's showing surprising. That yeah, uh, showing that Operation Night Scout, as they termed it, 
is a highly targeted operation. The victims ah. are based. Yes. Yeah. And again, as we know, the more people you infect, the greater the opportunity for discovery. Um, and but but it was probably the the infection of those five users that overlapped with ESETs being in their system watching what was going on that put ESET onto this behavior in the first place. So anyway, th th those victims, as I mentioned, were in, are in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Sri Lanka. Uh, they said we were unsuccessful finding correlations that would suggest any relationships among victims. On the other hand, they've got, you know, it's all they're seeing is those five that happen to be using ESET. Who knows overall? Because because uh, Big Knox is saying that they've got 150 million users, not 100,000. So, you know, there it may also be that ESETs overlap uh, you know, with targeted victims uh, wasn't very big. They said we were unsuccessful finding correlations that would suggest any relationships among victims. However, based on the compromised software in question and the delivery malware exhibiting surveillance capabilities, we believe this may indicate the intent of collecting intelligence on targets somehow involved in the gaming community. Um, and then in their posting details and diagrams, the precise operation of the Knox player update system is, is explained. And after that, they conclude, we have sufficient evidence to state that the big Knox infrastructure, and then we have some, some domain names, res06.bignox.com, was compromised to host malware. And also to suggest that their HTTP API infrastructure at api.bignox.com could have been compromised. In some cases, additional payloads were downloaded by the Bignox updater from attacker-controlled servers. So not from the, the malware didn't always come from Bignox itself. Sometimes, somehow, there was a URL change. And in fact, that's what they said. This suggests that the URL field provided in the reply from the Bignox API was tampered with by attackers. And, you know, they said HTTP API. I didn't look closely enough to see whether it was actually HTTPS. Of course, if, it, if they have an unencrypted API, then anyone anywhere in line could intercept and tweak uh, the URL in, in, in the reply field. So what we have is a much smaller scale version of the now infamous SolarWinds intrusion, uh, which one way or another leveraged the software updating channel to quietly slide malware into a victim's machine. And, you know, it's, this sort of put me in mind of things you and I used to say, Leo, which uh, we've sort of revised ourselves since. But once upon a time, I believed that I could successfully take responsibility for not getting my own system infected. You know, we've talked about this through the years. Don't download anything that a website tells you you need. That's never going to end well. Don't click on links in sketchy email. Be very wary of anything you download from a third-party download repository. Whenever possible, go to the source. You know, get the thing you want directly from the publisher and so on. But today... We all need to face the fact that we no longer 
have that control over our own machine's destinies. Many of the tools, utilities, and widgets that we use are being periodically updated. Uh, for me, Notepad++ comes immediately to mind because it is constantly wanting to update itself. You know, not only is that annoying, since it seems to be working just fine for me, but it's also inherently dangerous. You know, if their build process or their update server were to get compromised, and we've covered stories in the past where that has happened to well-meaning organizations, in a very short time, remember it even happened to Lenovo at one point, in a very short time, a huge number of Windows users would be infected because their instances of Notepad++ said, oh, I've got a better, shinier version. And everyone would say, oh, got to have that. Maybe it's better somehow. Uh, you know, and so what the point is that the fact that they have this leverage over an install base of Notepad++ users puts them in the crosshairs of the bad guys. It makes them a high-value target. Bad guys would love to get their malware just automatically downloaded into all of the Notepad++ users in the world. So for me, the solution is Windows Defender, which I now long I now no longer recommend only to others. <laughs> I, I look at it and, and it's it's the green little happy house with the flag on yeah. it down in my in my tray. You know, I depend upon it as well. And since at the moment I'm sitting in front of a Windows 7 machine, I'm thankful to Microsoft for continuing to update Win7's Defender, even though they have otherwise abandoned Windows 7 and wish I wasn't still using it, while I and nearly half of all the other desktops that are running Windows in the world. So, you know, I was recently stating uh, that any responsible company needs to be performing continuous network intrusion detection surveillance because defenses have become too porous compared to the external pressure that exists to get in. And in an exact analogy, at the personal level, I believe that today's end users must deploy their own local surveillance within their machines. It, you know, it's no longer the case that we that our actions explicitly invite stuff in. And so if we don't do that, nothing will bite us. Anything that we've got, which is saying, oh, there's an update available, click here to get it. You know, you already trust that thing because it hasn't bitten you before, but at any moment it could. So um, I'm, I'm a 100% now subscriber to the idea that you need something that is that is vigilant in your system that is looking at everything that goes on. And, you know, and I know Defender's workings. I have like some old C drives uh, archived on an, on a semi offline drive. And sometimes I'll open them and, and search through for something that I know I had then. And I, and back then I had a directory of, you know, well marked malware and sure enough, Defender pops up and says, what the hell are you doing? And it's like, okay, relax. It's okay. This is just, you know, I'm a security guy. I do research. I have, I have this stuff for a reason. 
but you know, so it's just sort of nice when it goes off and I go, Oh yeah, that is, you know, that is true. I forgot about that directory. <laughs> Maybe it'd be a good time to delete it as a matter of fact. Um, so anyway, I, I just, I, th I thought that was interesting that here we've got at the user level, individuals being targeted and, and surveilled, uh, which just put me in mind of the, the shift that we've had, you know, here I'm arguing that everything needs to update itself. Right. I don't know. Uh, notepad, just leave my notepad alone. It's works just fine. I have I think maybe I should turn off automatic updates <laughs> because I've just convinced myself that this is a real danger. Um, Apple has quietly put iMessage in a sandbox in iOS 14. Um, the new code was discovered, reverse engineered, described and documented by Google Project Zero's Samuel Gross. And I thank Elaine for the pronunciation. I The first time I talked about him, I said Grobe because it's G-R-O and he has a, like a funky... Yeah, that's us, us. Exactly. Yeah. And so Elaine, always alert to these things, sent back a little note saying, uh, Steve, that's a, that's an SS in German. It's like, oh. Yeah, um, it's a special Samuel, symbol there yeah. for that. Yeah. <laughs> Samuel wrote, <clears throat> Samuel Gross of Google's Project Zero, he wrote on December 20th, Citizen Lab published The Great iPhone, detailing how, quote, journalists were hacked with suspected NSO group iMessage zero-click exploit, unquote. He said a particular interest is the following note. We do not believe that the exploit works against iOS 14 and above, which includes new security protections, unquote. Now, he said, given that it is almost now exactly a year ago since we published the remote iPhone exploitation blog post series, and we covered that at the time where they were amazing and extensive, he said, in which we described how an iMessage zero-click exploit can work in practice, and gave a number of suggestions on how similar attacks could be prevented in the future, now seem like a great time to dig into the security improvements in iOS 14 in more detail and explore how Apple has hardened their platform against zero-click attacks. And of course, those are that, that means that your phone could receive iMessages which would which without you doing anything, just the receipt of the iMessage could could be enough to give the attacker e e either access to your phone that you don't want them to have or some information that then that allows them to incrementally get to a point where they're able to succeed. Now, what's cool about this, what Google has done, that is to say reverse engineering iOS 14, um, is that Apple is famously, you know, mum about this. They, they just say, oh, it's better. But, you know, we want more. So, you know, Samuel provided more. He said the content of this blog post is the result of a, of a roughly one-week reverse engineering project, mostly performed on an M1 Mac Mini running Mac OS 11.1 with the results where possible, 
verified to also apply to iOS 14.3 running on an iPhone XS. Now, I'll just stop there to note that remember that you, it's it's virtually impossible to look inside a, an iPhone at this point. But what we do know is that Apple is reusing the same the the same code systems both in the iPhone and in Mac OS. And Mac OS is far more open to poke around in. And so so we've talked about this happening before, but I wanted to remind our listeners that what what we're now beginning to see is that the iPhone's behavior being inferred from and then later verified from the behavior in the much more accessible Mac OS. So Samuel said, due to the nature of this project, and the limited time frame, it is possible that I have missed some relevant changes or made mistakes interpreting some results. Where possible, I've tried to describe the steps necessary to verify the presented results and would appreciate any corrections or additions. He says the blog post will start with an overview of the major changes Apple implemented in iOS 14, which affects the security of iMessage. Afterwards, and mostly for the readers interested in the technical details, each of the major improvements is described in more detail while also providing a walkthrough of how it was reverse engineered. And that's, of course, way more than we need to get into here. The, 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 the main things that Apple did are of, of, of interest. Um, he says, at least for the technical details, it's recommended to briefly review the blog post series from last year, for a basic introduction to iMessage and the exploitation techniques used to attack it. Okay, so the four things Apple did. Um, he said, memory corruption-based zero-click exploits typically require at least the following pieces. One, a memory corruption vulnerability reachable without user interaction and ideally without triggering any user notifications. Second, a way to break ALSR, A, I'm sorry, ASLR remotely, right? Address space layout randomization remotely. You need to gain information about that. A way to turn the vulnerability into a remote code execution. Third, and then fourth, likely a way to break out of any sandbox typically by exploiting a separate vulnerability in another operating system component, for example, a user space service or, or the kernel. And certainly in years past, when we've talked about the, the, the way the pwn-to-own attacks have succeeded, it was often by doing what he was referring to, chaining vulnerabilities. One, get, one, one vulnerability gets you here, then from there you're able to use a second one to move to a certain uh, to a different location and so forth in a chain. Okay, so he describes three things that Apple has done to essentially zap all four of those things. The first is the Blast Door, <laughs> great name, the Blast Door service. He said, one of the major changes in iOS 14 is the introduction of a new tightly sandboxed blast door service, which is now responsible for almost all parsing of untrusted data in iMessages. He says, and he gives an example of, of, of a function inside. He says, furthermore, this service is written in Swift, 
a mostly memory-safe language, which makes it significantly harder to introduce classic memory corruption vulnerabilities into the code base. So, of course, this is exactly what I was just talking about. Swift uh, is not C. (laughs) It's not C and it's not assembler. Exactly. And it is it is exactly this. This is that's the way you want to write your 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 code to parse untrusted data and uh, uh, write that service in Swift so that the service itself will will be highly resistant to uh, attack. So then uh, in, in his presentation, he shows us a rough diagram of iMessage message processing pipeline, which is this big grid of arrows pointing everywhere. And then he, he says, he continues, as can be seen, the majority of the processing of complex untrusted data has been moved into the new Blastdoor service. Furthermore, this design with its seven plus involved services allows fine-grained sandboxing rules to be applied. He says, for example, only the IM transfer agent and the APSD processes, whatever those are, are required to perform network operations. As such, all services in this pipeline are now properly sandboxed, with the blast door service arguably being sandboxed the strongest. The second thing of the three that Apple did, re-randomization of the DYLD, that's probably dynamic load, shared cache region. He says, historically, ASLR on Apple's platforms had one architectural weakness. The shared cache region containing most of the system's libraries in a single pre-linked blob was only randomized per boot and so would stay at the same address across all processes. He says, this turned out to be especially critical in the context of zero-click attacks as it allowed an attacker able to remotely observe process crashes, for example, through through, through timing of automatic delivery of receipts, to infer the base address of the shared cache and as such break ASLR, a prerequisite for subsequent exploitation. He said, however, with iOS 14, Apple has added logic to specifically detect this kind of attack, in which case the shared cache is re-randomized for the targeted service the next time it is started thus rendering this technique useless. This should make bypassing ASLR in a zero-click attack context significantly harder or even impossible. He says, apart from brute force, which would mean, you know, guessing, just just guessing blindly and hoping you get lucky about about the the cache's location. Uh, He says, depending upon the concrete vulnerability. And finally, third, exponential throttling to slow down brute force attacks. He said to limit an attacker's ability to retry exploits or brute force ASLR, the blast door and uh, IM agent services are now subject to a newly introduced exponential throttling mechanism enforced by the launch daemon. 
causing the interval between restarts after a crash to double with every subsequent crash. He says, he says up to an apparent maximum of 20 minutes. He says, with this change, an exploit that relied on repeatedly crashing the attacked service would now likely requ require in the order of multiple hours to roughly half a day to complete instead of a few minutes. And anyway, so then for the remainder of his disclosure, Samuel lays out the details of what he found. I've got the link in the show notes for anyone who really wants to, you know, who's curious about exactly how Apple did these things. Um, it seems to me in today's climate, it is this sort of anticipatory design for security that's needed. Um, you know, after the troubles that surfaced in iOS 13, Apple did not simply patch those individual flaws and leave everything else alone. Instead, they fundamentally re-architected the entire iMessage processing system to preempt entire classes of next-generation attacks. Um, and it's the right thing to do. iMessage has an exposure to the world. It's the waste to unsolicited stuff can come into your phone. And so rather than assuming that, oh, we love, those were the last bugs we're ever going to have, Apple said, okay, those are not the last bugs we're ever going to have. You know, we keep fixing them. So let's change the architecture. Let's look at if we have a bug, how can we keep it from compromising the user? And that's what they did. And, you know, and one could argue that it should have always been that way. But what we've been witnessing is a slow but sure, constantly rising threat level through, you know, through the life of this podcast, the 15 years that we've been doing this, we've watched the threat level, you know, go from people putting scripts in email because they thought it was funny to, you know, nation states <laughs> deeply infiltrating uh, U.S. corporate and government networks surreptitiously. I mean, it's a whole new game. So, um, you know, Apple has been in the middle of it all through all of this. And without question, lessons are being learned, hopefully by the entire industry. And that's what I think makes Samuel's sharing of what Apple won't tell us so valuable. If Apple hides this innovation, then the rest of the industry isn't able to go, ooh, uh, yeah, maybe we should do that too. Um, you know, there's, to me, there's little doubt that future systems will be designed with these sorts of mitigations built in from the get-go, but only if those who are implementing them are willing to share what's going on. There's no way that bad guys knowing this is being done is going gonna, is gonna, to uh, help them. The, the way Apple did this is it, it is a it is limiting the uh, amount of and rate of knowledge that a bad guy can obtain. And and mitigation really is what this is, because Apple is saying, OK, we keep trying to fix problems. Bad guys keep finding them. You know, let's change the system so it doesn't matter. If they find them, we're still going to do our best to, 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 to fix them. But, you know, let's add a, a, 
you know, a really strong, effective sandboxing around iMessage, which is, uh, you know, what they've done. So, you know, props to uh, Google and Samuel for uh, taking the time to do this reverse engineering and then share it with everybody else. Uh, it raises the bar of what a responsible provider needs to do uh, to protect their own users. So, bravo. And Leo, as you said earlier, for the past 10 years, <laughs> the command all of us who've used Linux and Unix know as sudo turned out to only be sudo secure. <laughs> um, last week, a very serious bug came to light in the command. This is where you not don't you do not want it. The command line parser of Linux's powerful sudo command. Uh, as we know, sudo allows non-root users to temporarily elevate their rights to obtain some root privileges. This is typically done for performing maintenance and various system level things that your your typical user, even if you're the only user on the system, you know, the modern security architecture says everybody should be running with reduced rights all the time and you only selectively and briefly raise your rights in order to do stuff. You know, and, and that's essentially what Windows provided with, with the whole UAC architecture where you got to say yes, you know, the screen goes dark and you get a dialogue and then you say yes, I, I want to do this and that then switches your credentials briefly in order to allow you to do that. So uh, Qualys discovered the problem. They wrote, the Qualys research team has discovered a heap overflow vulnerability in sudo, a near ubiquitous utility available on major Unix-like operating systems. Any unprivileged user can gain root privileges on a vulnerable host using a default pseudo configuration by exploiting this vulnerability. Um, they said pseudo is a powerful utility that's included in most, if not all, Unix and Linux-based OSs. I've, and, you know, FreeBSD has it. So, you know, so it's everywhere. Uh, it allows users to run programs with the security privileges of another user. The vulnerability itself has been hiding in plain sight for nearly 10 years. It was introduced, it'll be 10 years in July, in, in, introduced in July of 2011 with commit 8255ED69 and affects all legacy versions from 1.8.2 to 1.8.31P2 and all stable versions from 1.9.0 to 1.9.5p1 in their default configuration. They said successful exploitation of this vulnerability allows any unprivileged user to gain root privileges on the vulnerable host. Qualys security researchers have been able to independently verify the vulnerability and develop multiple variants of exploit and obtain full root privileges on Ubuntu 20.04, Debian 10, and Fedora 33. Other operating systems and distributions are also likely to be exploitable. And yeah, anything that was packaged in the last 10 years. 
As soon as, soon as the Qualys research team confirmed the vulnerability, Qualys engaged in responsible vulnerability disclosure and coordinated with Sudo's author and open source distributions to announce the vulnerability. So when that happened, the maintainers of Sudo followed up last Tuesday, the 26th of January, saying a serious heat-based buffer overflow has been discovered in Sudo that is exploitable by any local user. It has been given the name Baron Samedit by its discoverer. <laughs> I have a play no on the, idea. No, that's a play on the voodoo uh, god Baron Samdi. <laughs> ah, it was thank evil. You, Leo. <laughs> <laughs> that is hysterical. Baron, Baron same edit. Same edit. <laughs> yeah. The bug can be leveraged to elevate privileges to root, even if the user is not listed in the sudoers file. User authentication is not required to exploit the bug. So the concern here beyond this, I mean, now our, I'm sure that our listeners who are, maybe have Linux deployed in in environments where there might be unauthorized users with access to it who, you know, should not be able to gain access, you're going to want to update your uh, instance of sudo immediately. But the concern is the Internet is full of systems. This speaks to your point, Leo, you made before, which quite naturally depend for their security upon the proven strength of the Unix Linux account privilege model. And this now well-known flaw punches right through that. There are doubtless countless systems where an unprivileged user account is easily available with minimal authentication requirements. Not good. Such systems are utterly dependent upon their security for that unprivileged account remaining unprivileged. But any Linux system that went online anytime after July 2011, <laughs> nine and a half years, will contain this flaw mm. until and unless it is updated. And we know that Linux is, an, is embedded everywhere. And everything we've seen demonstrates that most of those systems will never be updated. You know, they're everywhere. So to repurpose a now famous phrase, <clears throat> stand back and stand by. <laughs> it's an evil made attack, though, right? Again, you'd have to be at the keyboard to do that. Most people, you can't go. No. no, no, you don't need to be at the keyboard. Any online account, any any non-root online account can do this. Yeah. So it well, is exploitable. You're at the keyboard of that online account. You can't. Sure. Yeah. You can't get onto my Linux server uh, unless you have a login, and that's not using right. as you do. That's that's using right. SSH or something like that, which is much more secure. Well, but but you, you but you could also see scenarios where there are where the privilege model is relied upon. Right. There is a no, low if you have a privilege logon. account. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Every university, this is going to be vulnerable. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So I'm, I'm right uh, now just new... logging in to update. I forgot. See, this is a perfect example. I updated all my desktop Linux machines, but I got my server in the other room, which I never log into. I haven't updated in a long time. Got to update yeah. that, right? 
Yikes. Yep. And and you're you're also right that this is the uh, this is a gold mine maybe for initial network intrusion but definitely for post intrusion lateral movement yeah. within an organization. Once, you, once you're on that system, right? Now you can escalate. Yeah. 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 Wow. Okay, so um, I want to share uh, a progress report that I wrote yesterday for uh, for my blog over on GRC's forums, and and I've had this experience before. Anybody who's done any journaling probably has. I did a lot of journaling when I was in high school, and I would you know open a my my journal and decide I wanted to write about some personal subject. And even though I, I went in thinking I knew everything about it, invariably a paragraph or two in, I would think of something that had never occurred to me before. And, and I decided that the act of making myself write it out longhand, it kind of, it kept those ideas in my brain longer and it gave them a chance to associate with other new ideas. So th this literally, I had a, a major like Eureka event yesterday uh, about the future of Spinrite. Um, so, I, I, and I sort of started out what I have here in my notes as that blog posting, but then I expanded upon it because I because there was a lot more context. So, so I started by saying February 1st product report, much has transpired since my previous January 3rd announcement that work on Spinrite 6.1 has commenced. To plan for what Spinrite 6.1 would and would not be, I needed to know how I was going to solve Spinrite's imperative need to boot on UEFI systems that no longer offer a traditional BIOS fallback. So while beginning to work on Spinrite, I was also searching for any means to add BIOS support to a system that doesn't currently have any. The firmware which boots a system is intimately tied to its hardware. That's why systems need firmware in the first place. This means that it's not possible to simply run any BIOS on whatever hardware happens to be present. So I was hoping that someone somewhere might have created a UEFI to BIOS translation layer, which would allow for BIOS calls to be translated into their UEFI equivalent. That would allow Spinrite to load such a translation layer, then boot the BIOS-dependent DOS, and then reuse everything that Spinrite already is on any UEFI system. But unfortunately, nothing like that exists. And no one has ever created such a thing because the need for something like that only exists due to Spinrite's unique and continuing dependence upon the legacy of 16-bit DOS. So that search provided some needed clarity. The only way to move Spinrite forward would be to finally, after 35 years, end its dependence upon the BIOS and DOS. So I began looking around for the optimal environment which would host Spinrite's future. And I'll spare everybody the blow-by-blow. Blow. 
that's all over in the spinright.dev news group where, uh, where all of this conversation was happening earlier in January. But, if, you know, for what it's worth, we looked at everything. Uh, Linux using Windows PE, the, the portable or, or the, the pre-execution uh, pre, uh, environment, uh, the React OS, uh, various other hobby OSs, and many of the various embedded OSs like VxWorks. Um, in the end, I settled upon an extremely lightweight real-time operating system for embedded applications, which is called the OnTime RTOS32. Um, it is what I love about it is essentially it is able to host Windows applications with, with within limits in an embedded uh, environment. So uh, it allows executable code to be written, tested, and debugged under Windows, which is still my preferred development environment. And then that PE format executable is repackaged for operation under its own loader and environment. Um, and it supports booting from either a BIOS or UEFI firmware. But what that meant was that in order to get to UEFI, I would need to dramatically change the operating environment. Operating under DOS and the Intel processor's real mode, as Spinrite has always done, means that two 16-bit registers are always being referenced in order to access memory. Uh, and in the way it's, this is done is a bit funky. The, the bits in a 16-bit segment register are left-shifted four bits to create a 20-bit value whose lower four bits are always zero. Then a 16-bit offset register or, or value is added to that 16-bit result. So the 16-bit offset register means that you can access a 64K, a, a, anything in a 64K region at one time, and the 16-bit segment register determines where that accessible 64K byte block is located with a granularity of 16 bytes. So together, this, uh, this is the way the Intel real mode has always worked. This is what allows for addressing of one megabyte of memory because that's what 20 bits gives you. So it's sort of, it's a funky way of synthesizing a 20-bit address using two 16-bit values. Um, so, uh, and, and this, of course, is where the Intel 8080 and 8086's one megabyte memory limit came from. Um, so Intel... Intel's later chips have 32-bit registers. So it, like in Windows and in any other, like Linux, Unix, I mean, any 32-bit uh, OS uses a simple flat memory model where 32 bits directly allows you to specify the address, period. You're done. And as we know, 32 bits allows the addressing of four gigabytes. You know, that's, you know, 4.3 IPv4 addresses on the internet. Those are 32-bit, you know, uh, uh, addresses. So 
Back when I wrote Spinrite <laughs> initially in 1985, I embraced segmentation. That's, you know, that's the way the Intel chips works. And that's all we had back then. So, for example, in Spinrite, when you rotate through Spinrite's screens, each of those screens is referenced by a 16-bit segment with each screen starting at offset zero within its own segment. On the one hand, it's messy, but it can be incredibly efficient and economical if, if you design to it. You know, and it is Intel's legacy, and, and I designed to it. So the problem moving forward is that only the Intel 16-bit real mode or the 16-bit virtual 86 mode performs this, has the hardware that performs this segmentation math. So there's no future there. If the chip is not in one of the 16-bit modes, you don't have segmented memory. So for the past three weeks or so, my plan yeah. had been to finish Spinrite 6.1 um, and that that would be the final release of Spinrite to run in a 16-bit DOS environment. And that only made sense because any further investment in the 16-bit environment would not be portable to the future. So it makes it just doesn't make any sense to invest more time and energy there. My plan had been, and I described this over in GRC's news group where we were discussing this, to just bite the bullet and start over in a 32-bit flat memory environment, re-implement Spinrite from scratch, probably as a as a you know a, a, a text mode command line utility, the way read speed is right now. Um, get it all running, get all the all the functionality there, and then later move it into a graphical environment. The aha moment that I had just yesterday was to, and now I'm like, I'm back in Spinrite. I've got the new memory manager is running. It's got simultaneous access to all of the system's memory. Um, I've merged a bunch of the code from Spinrite and read speed. So I'm, I know I'm, that's how I'm spending my days now. And I'm making really good progress. And maybe it's the comfort with it that allowed me to see this, but I just, it hit me. I'm not stuck using segmentation. I mean, I am with Spinrite's current code, but I can port 16-bit Spinrite into 32-bit land. I can, because all the segmentation is explicit in Spinrite. And so my plan now after 6.1 is finished and published and everyone's able to use it and play with it, I'm going to then port the 16-bit Spinrite as it is into a 32-bit environment. It'll be hosted on this on-time RTOS 32. Um, it'll look exactly as it does now because that's a way to get it done fast. And that will then give us a Spinrite that can boot on either DOS or UEFI, and it will be 32-slash-64-bit code that can then continue to grow in the future. So anyway, uh, an interesting set of constraints that uh, had to be worked through, 
But uh, I've been thinking about it now for about a day, and I'm really happy with uh, having sort of found a way uh, out of this corner that Spinrite's age had painted me into. So I'm I just I'm very excited to be uh, making great progress with six one and to have a way of not having to scrap everything uh, in order to move over to UEFI and then continue working on uh, the the additional drivers uh, that I want to add to it. So anyway, I just thought our listeners would find it interesting, um, as I'm sure they will. This next sponsor, Leo, and then we'll then we'll talk <laughs> about Matt, Matt Slipstreaming. <laughs> uh, that's a good segue. Our sponsor is actually somebody you all should uh, be interested in. In fact, somebody was asking in the um, Twit forums. Oh, there was a sponsor that had a really good product. I couldn't remember what it was, and well. It was Extra Hop, and uh, they figured it out and said, yes, Extra Hop, I signed up. Uh, Extra Hop, we've talked a lot about it. Uh, this is actually very timely, as you know, because of this, the solar wind sunburst attack. Um, that was really a wake-up call for a lot of people on the changing threat landscape. If you listen to this show, you, it was no surprise to you. Cyber attacks have only become more advanced, harder to detect. And, uh, you know, the pseudo thing really points out that the most dangerous most advanced attackers are the ones that are already inside right and once they're inside now they can pseudo and uh, as you do and go, i you know it's funny i say pseudo too steve it's supposedly s you do for switch user do right but right. s you do doesn't sound good at all <laughs> sounds like there's something wrong with you so i say yeah. pseudo you know what i'm talking about the most advanced threat actors are the ones that are in our environments have been in there, those advanced persistent threats for a long time without our knowledge. Uh, when cyber criminals get past your defenses, businesses need a plan for detection and response, ideally remediation. The old model of protection and prevention alone is not enough. Extra Hop is a new product they want to tell you about. Reveal X. It's a great name. Reveal parenthesis X. It's a function. It's a function name. It's the only solution that allows you uh, or shows you not just where the intruders are going, but where they've been, it's like breadcrumbs. So you can investigate incidents and prevent them from turning into full-blown breaches. Have we been compromised is kind of the constant, you know, constant refrain. Are we okay? Is there anybody in the network? Do you know? Extra Hop Reveal X makes it super simple to answer that question. You've got 90 days of record look back. Complete network visibility across the data center, the cloud, and the device edge. That's one thing Extra Hop, we've talked about this before, Extra Hop does. It doesn't just live on-prem. It lives everywhere your data lives, all the way down to the customer or the endpoint. And it means that you're going to have 90 days of information. Well, not starting from today, but 90 days from now when you sign up, that'll allow your team to get the real answers in seconds. In the post-compromise world, your greatest chance at stopping advanced threats is with ExtraHop Network Detection and Response, NDR. And ExtraHop has so many important features, I can't go into them all in a simple commercials, but I encourage you to visit extrahop.com slash security now. Find out how ExtraHop stops breaches 84% faster and can detect breaches so that you can get rid of that bad guy. There's a very nice interactive demo at extrahop.com slash security. Now, please use that address. That way they know you saw it here. Extrahop.com slash security. Now, and for the guy in the uh, Twit community 
who's I'm going to find this because it was a really it was uh, it was a funny question because he remembered everything about the product except the name. That happens, doesn't it? Um, it, uh, he was saying, I hope you can help me with the name of a recent Twit sponsor. I can't find it. I was listening to a show in January, integration of network security, inventory management, patch management. We gave him a lot of names. He, he, if he tried a lot of things and finally extra hop, that's it. <laughs> extra hop. <laughs> uh, thank you. Silent, silent sky was his name. Thank you so much to all who responded to my question. I very much appreciate it. The sponsor I was looking for was Extra Hop. This is a great community. And let us know, Silent Sky. I think you're going to like it. And take a look at some of the new things Extra Hop can do. ExtraHop.com slash security now. Back to Mr. G. For Slipstreaming 2.0. All right. So it's Groundhog Day it, after all. It is. Yes. Uh, it was episode 792 of Security Now, which we recorded last November the 10th, titled NAT Firewall Bypass. Uh, and perhaps we should have added a 1.0 to it in anticipation of the technique's inevitable evolution. Uh, thus, today's podcast bears the title NAT Slipstreaming 2.0. Um, I'll begin by reminding everyone where we were in November uh, and quickly placed that first generation exploit into context against today's second generation exploit. The original NAT slipstreaming attack relied on a victim within an internal network uh, tucked safely, they thought, behind their NAT router uh, who would click on a link or just visit a website which was running JavaScript, would then run JavaScript on their browser, as every website and ad now does, um, that would open an incoming path, using some very, click, some very clever packet hacking, open an incoming path from the internet to the victim's device. So that was bad enough back then that all of our browsers quickly moved to block outbound access to a few additional remote port numbers which, which, through which the traffic had to go in order to trigger the, the, um, the NAT router's application layer gateway, which I'll get to in a second. So today's upgrade of NAT slipstreaming extends this attack by allowing the remote attacker to trick the NAT into creating NAT traversal mappings to any device on the internal network, not only to the victim's device, which originally and unwittingly did something, clicked a, clicked a link, visited a, a, a site with a malicious ad or whatever. As we know, many devices located on our internal LANs may be fine there, but they were never in, intended to be exposed to the Internet. How many times have I talked about services that should never, under any circumstances, poke their heads out onto the Internet? Um, so this is precisely uh, what version 2 of NAT slipstreaming allows. Many embedded devices have minimal local security, if any, because they correctly presumed 
that they would only ever be accessible to local users. You know, an example is an office printer, which can be controlled through its default printing protocol uh, or through its internal web server. Uh, and we've we've talked about how printers, the, the firmware in printers could be su subverted and malware can actually live in a printer uh, until it's rooted out. Well, it turns out this provides a means for the malware to get into the printer in the first place. Or maybe an industrial controller that uses an unauthenticated protocol for monitoring and controlling its functions. Or an IP camera that has an internal web server displaying its feed, which is only available supposedly internally and maybe has default credentials, which are not a problem because it's never going to be accessed from the outside. This second-generation variant of the NAT slipstreaming attack can access these types of interfaces from the Internet, which results in attacks that range from, you know, a nuisance to potentially sophisticated ransomware attacks. Okay, so in addition to network interfaces of devices that are unauthenticated by design, Many unmanaged devices may also be vulnerable to publicly known but currently unpatched vulnerabilities, right? I mean, there's like all kinds of, of vulnerabilities that exist in devices that just no one ever gets around to patching. These could be exploited by an attacker who is able to bypass the NAT firewall to initiate traffic that can trigger known weaknesses on devices behind the NAT. So uh, to gain some sense for this, in a recent study, Armis's researchers found that 97% of industrial controllers, which were vulnerable to Urgent 11, which is something we talked about at the time, were left unpatched more than a year after the critical vulnerabilities were first published. So there were there were initially 100% of industrial controllers that that were that were vulnerable to this. The Urgent 11, uh, for, to remind our listeners, was a set of 11 zero-day vulnerabilities which were discovered in the VxWorks embedded operating system, the most embedded OS today. And of those 100%, 97 are still vulnerable a year later. They just, they didn't get fixed. Embedded OSs are not going to get updated. So those things are sitting there with well-known vulnerabilities. The only thing protecting them is that bad guys out on the internet can't access the embedded OS. This thing provides them a means to do so. 80% of Cisco devices, which were vulnerable to the CD Pwn vulnerability, still are nearly a year after those critical vulnerabilities were published. So, again, you, you definitely don't want to allow a NAT router to be abused using this new, more powerful slipstream approach. Um, so, the original discoverer of this, Sammy Kamkar, uh, he... He described the summary of the attack, which he discovered, the original one. He said, NAT slipstreaming allows an attacker to remotely access any TCP UDP service, bypassing the victim's NAT firewall just by having the victim visit a website 
or causing their browser to run JavaScript contained within an online ad. Okay, so as we know, strict NAT traversal rules are straightforward, simple, and elegant. They amount to only accept incoming return traffic from remote IPs and ports that recently received outbound traffic. That's all there is to it, uh, right? So traffic is, is seen going out of the NAT router. The NAT router makes a note of it, actually creates a, a, a an entry in a mapping table such that when return traffic comes back from the same IP and port that it went to, the router knows who to send it to back on the inside of the LAN. And, and as I've often said years ago, this forms a, a sort of a beautiful firewall automatically. Unsolicited traffic just hits the NAT, and because it wasn't expected and it isn't part of a, of an, of a, of a communications that was initiated from inside, it goes nowhere. But Sammy's original inspiration was to observe that those simple and straightforward NAT traversal rules, or really that one simple and straightforward traversal rule, often needs to be bent in order to accommodate the needs of more complex network protocols. Works great for email and for web surfing. Uh, not so, for example, in the case of active FTP, which is an example we used before, where the outbound control connection tells the FT, the remote FTP server what port to connect to it inbound. For that to operate transparently through NAT, because that the remote FTP server is going to try to initiate what will look like an unsolicited connection to the NAT router, it requires that the NAT router be looking inside the outbound FTP traffic for the to, to actually read out of the packet the outgoing port specification, which the remote FTP server is going to receive, and then automatically reroute the remote FTP server's new and technically unsolicited connection through to the proper expected port on the client machine of the LAN. So, in other words, it's got to get very involved in the protocol. So collectively, these are all known as ALGs, application layer gateways. A uh, application layer because it is at the application that the packets are carrying. It's not, you know, the, the, the network layer would be the packets themselves. The application layer is what's in the packet envelopes. So, you know, they, and so this, this AL, the ALGs require the router to be aware of the content of the packets passing through it rather than just the fact of the packet. It can no longer just look at the, at the, uh, at the destination IP and port. So under the, if in my case, I looked at this last night under the NAT pass-through tab of the WAN section of one of my ASUS routers, it provides for PPTP, L2TP, IPSec, RTSP, 
H.323 SIP PPPOE Relay and FTP. Those are the application layer gateways that that it is this very capable router is is uh, able to provide. Conservative, as I always am, when first setting up that network, I immediately disabled all of those ALG pass-throughs since I have no need for them, or so I thought. Consequently, I was quite puzzled when the Verizon LTE network extender I've talked about this once before on the show. Uh, Lori and I are somewhere with a really bad cell coverage so that you just can't use Verizon at all. It's like no bars. So I got one of those little Femto cell boxes. Uh, and But I noticed that when I hooked it up and plugged it in, it wouldn't connect. Just could not find its network. So digging through the FAQs, I noticed that it mentioned its use of IPsec, and I thought, ah, I know what's wrong. So I went back into the router, turned on just the IPsec NAT traversal pass-through, and it came right up on the network. So it is the case that, it, that you might find that you need some of these things, but again, Conservative security best practice is absolutely positively turn off things you don't know you need. Uh, and as it happens, uh, as a consequence of that approach, that network uh, that I configured was never vulnerable to version two of this NAT tra uh, traversal attack. Okay, so... What happened with the first and second generations of NAT slipstreaming? It turns out that there is an even more insidious application layer gateway present in our routers than Sammy had originally exploited. Researchers at Armis were intrigued by what Sammy originally found. Um, they had done some research before but hadn't really wrestled it to the ground. When, when they, they saw Sammy's posting, they immediately dusted off what they had done before and pushed it across the finish line. Uh, and of course, as we know, I quoted Bruce Schneier at the beginning of the show, attacks never get less powerful, they only grow more powerful. The guys at Armis said, building upon Sammy's ideas and combining them with some of our own led us to the discovery of the new variant. This new variant is comprised of the following newly disclosed primitives. Unlike most other application layer gateways, these ALG functions in our routers, the H.323 ALG, when supported, and it is widely, enables an attacker to create a pinhole in the NAT firewall to any internal IP rather than just the IP of the victim that clicks on the malicious link. Then, WebRTC turn, T-U-R-N, that's the traversal using relay around NAT, WebRTC turn connections can be established by browsers over TCP to any destination port. The browser's restricted ports list, that is this thing that the browsers did in November 
to to prevent this was not consulted by this logic and was therefore bypassed. This allows the attacker to reach additional application layer gateways, such as the FTP and IRC ALGs using ports 21 and 6667 respectively, that were previously unreachable due to the restricted ports list. The FTP ALG is widely used in NATs and firewalls. So, so their, their point was, first of all, if you have H.323, that's a powerful application layer gateway for abuse. If you don't, then the support for WebRTC turn can be abused to bypass the restricted ports list that are, are, that are currently protecting our, our browsers from initiating this kind of traffic. And they said this also defeated the browser mitigations introduced shortly after SAMI first published the NAT slipstreaming attack, which added the SIP port 5060 to the restricted ports list, but did not block the port from being reachable via a turn connection. And they said H.323 is a VOIP protocol similar to SIP, which is also quite complex for a network of VOIP phones to function properly while having a NAT somewhere inside the topology, an H.323 application layer gateway is required. The H.323 ALG needs to translate IP addresses that are contained within the application layer H.323 protocol packets and open holes in the NAT in certain scenarios. Actually, it's when call forwarding uh, features are used. They said most ALGs only need to worry about at most two addresses to translate within a session, the IP address and ports of both sides of the TCP connection. However, H.323 is a telephony protocol and supports call forwarding. Therefore, in this case, one party within the session can refer to a third-party IP address belonging to the VOIP phone that the call should be forwarded to. Most H323 ALGs support this feature. So the upshot of all this is that a single H.323 packet sent over TCP port 1720 that initiates call forwarding can open an external pinhole through the NAT to any TCP port of any internal IP on the network. Thus, NAT slipstreaming just got a whole lot more powerful. Um, the Armist blog about this contains full details for anyone who wants more. I've got the link in the show notes. They tested many routers and found virtually all of them to be vulnerable to full port and IP exploitation, meaning that they were able to, to open remote attacker access to any IP and port behind the NAT. Since all of these attacks bounce scripts and network packets off of our web browsers, they then responsibly disclosed what they had found to all browser vendors. So in a, in a quick timeline, November 11th of 2020, 
was the coordinated disclosure of the new variant uh, uh, initiated with Chromium, Mozilla, and Apple. So that I think our, our podcast on the version one was November 10th. So the day after, the Wednesday, after we did that podcast, these guys had already jumped on this and they began a coordinated disclosure. On January 11th, so last month, Chrome Release 87 contained the patch mitigating the new attack variant. On the 7th, the next day, Microsoft Edge inherited it from Chrome, so Edge 87 got the same patch. On the 14th, a week later, Safari released version 14.0.3 beta that contains a patch, and it has since gone, of course, mainstream. And on the 26th of last month, Firefox, Firefox released 85 that contains a patch against the attack. And this was kept quiet and embargoed until all of our mainstream browsers were protected. So recalling from our coverage of this last November, our browsers responded to the first slipstreaming revelations by blocking HTTP and HTTPS access to ports 5060 and 5061. Now, as a consequence of Armis's, you know, second generation uh, exposition, we we re- all of the browser vendors realize, holy crap, that doesn't even begin to be sufficient. So now all of the browsers are blocking outbound HTTP, uh, HTTPS, and FTP access to ports 69, 137, 161, 1719, 1720, 1723, and uh, 6566 uh, TCP ports. Google said at the time, now, I mean, now they're acknowledging, they said the NAT Slipstream 2.0 attack is a kind of cross-protocol request forgery which permits malicious internet servers to attack computers on a private network behind a NAT device. The attack depends on being able to send traffic on port 1720, H.323. To prevent future attacks, this change also blocks several other ports which are known to be inspected by NAT devices and may be subject to similar exploitation. So this is sort of a, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Uh, but, you know, they're not going to only block 1720 this time. They're going to say, OK, what what other ports are NAT routers looking at? Let's just shut this whole thing down. So uh, so that's been resolved by our browsers. But I would argue that this is a, a perfect time to look at the configuration of your routers, because I think the other lesson here is to always turn off any unneeded features of your router. Uh, you wouldn't have thought that these things could be abused. Turns out, Sammy figured out how to do it. Uh, as a consequence of my very conservative approach, my own network wasn't ever vulnerable to any of this because, as I said earlier, I had already disabled all that. Then one of them bit me, you know, the, the lack of IPsec. It turns out, well, I have a need for it. So I turned only that one back on and everything's good again. And, you know, I'll keep in mind in case I do something. Uh, I don't know. I don't use any VOIP, but 
I would need to turn one of those on if I did. So it's it's good that our browsers are protecting us. Better if there are just if you if your router doesn't have abuse-prone application layer gateways in the first place. And you know you can turn them on if you need them. Right. Yeah. So if something breaks, turn it back on. But I think it's a good idea. Turn everything off and wait and see what happens. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Know? It's true. You know, this is true everywhere. Same thing on a network-attached storage. Uh, you might be right. tempted on to turn on a bunch of services you don't use. Don't. Turn right. them off. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you know what everybody should do is go over to Shields Up. Just check. See what, uh, see what services your router's saying hello to. Knock on the door. You want everything stealthed. I've learned that over the years. Yep. That's where you can get a copy of this show while you're there, grc.com. Steve's got 16 kilobit audio, 64 kilobit audio. It's the sole and only source for 16 kilobit audio and transcriptions. Uh, Beautifully written by Elaine Ferris, so you can read along. Even with the the gross... And she's got the, uh, what is that called? The uh, Eslet es something. She's got that funny, does she put the little funny B in there? Yeah. 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 And in fact, I I copied it from wherever it was Copy that I and saw paste his it name in. Yeah. And, and, and put it into my own show <laughs> hard, notes. So hard I to could find be, it. Yeah. I could be official also. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, rem- I recognize it from Strasse, the German word for street. You see it in Strasse. Ah. Uh, all of that uh, at grc.com. While you're there, pick up a copy of Spinrite. We're getting to the end of uh, end of the development oh, cycle for 6.1. Yes, I can yes, feel it. Yes. But yes. get 6.0. You'll get a free upgrade to 6.1, and you can participate in the final beta tests and so forth. Uh, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, getting better all the time. Soon we'll be saying the world's best hard drive and SSD recovery utility. I guess we could say that now, frankly. It refuses to die, Leo. It just... <laughs> Will not die. <laughs> the program that will not die. You can get uh, 64 kilobit audio and video files at our website, twit.tv slash SN. You can, uh, there's a YouTube channel. If you like, you know, you're a YouTube kind of person, subscribe to the Security Now YouTube channel. Best thing, in my opinion, would be to uh, get your favorite podcast client and subscribe there. And we're asking, everybody's asking for reviews these days. Uh, if you leave a reviews on uh, Apple's podcasts, platform that's always helpful for people who what is this security now i never heard of this scratch 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 just say just download it and listen and then you'll want to listen to all 803 other episodes um and you won't need your somonex and you well <laughs> you might need your vitamin d and your zinc That'd but you won't good. need the melatonin there you go <laughs> no it doesn't put you to sleep no, put me to sleep it's fascinating. No, you work hard on this. I know. I appreciate it. Uh, Steve can be messaged at uh, on Twitter at SGGRC. If you follow him there, uh, you'll get updates when the show's available. He puts show notes up there. Um, but again, he can take messages there or at uh, GRC.com slash feedback. <sighs> it's been a fun day. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> Go back to your knitting. I know you're a big you, knitter. Now, when we last talked, you were going to get four inches of rain. Did you get got, like got it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and now it's a beautiful, clear sky. It rained yesterday too. We got a lot of rain. Uh, the big atmospheric river missed us by uh, a few miles to the south, but we still Ooh. got a lot of rain. The main thing we're looking for, and probably you too, is snowpack. Uh, I don't know about Southern California, but Northern California, 
uh, all of our water is up there in the Sierra and we have to get the runoff in the spring. And so right. we want heavy snow and we got that. Yeah. Yeah. We Yay. got that. Yeah. That's good. Thank you, Steve. Have a okay, great buddy. week. We'll see you next week on security. Now. Yana. Sometimes the news of the week is best told by the people making and breaking it. And that is the essence of Tech News Weekly. Join me, Jason Howell, along with my co-host, Micah Sargent, as we interview the people who are breaking the news that you're probably already talking about. Plus, sometimes we actually get the people who are making the news, the people behind the story. That's Tech News Weekly on Twit.tv. Security.